0: amen. Matthew chapter 27, pick up, uh, we'll pick up in verse 51, and we'll read through 56. And uh, Matthew records for us, says, then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earthquake and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened. Many bodies of the saints. (sighs) Sorry. Many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the graves after his resurrection. They went into the holy city and appeared to many. So when the uh, centurion of those with him and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, They feared greatly, saying, truly, this is the Son of God. And many women who followed Jesus from Galilee, ministered to him, were there looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joses, and uh, the mother of the sons of Zebedee. So uh, in the last two studies prior to uh, taking the team to Hungary, we looked at the seven sayings of Jesus from the cross. And we learned that Jesus was crucified. He was nailed to the cross about 9 a.m. in the morning, and he hung on the cross for six hours. And we saw that Jesus made his first three statements from the cross during the first three hours that he hung upon the cross. And the first statement is found in Luke 23:34 Jesus said, "Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do." And then the second statement that Jesus spoke from the cross is found in also in Luke chapter 23, it's verse 43. Jesus said to the thief that was on the cross next to him, he said, "Surely I say to you today you will be with me in paradise." And the third saying came as Jesus looked down from the cross, saw his mother and John his disciple, and he and uh, we saw that Jesus said in John chapter nineteen verses twenty six and twenty seven, "Woman, behold your son." And then he goes on to say, "Behold your mother." He says that to John, and then from the sixth hour, the sixth hour to noon, Luke records for us a supernatural darkness that fell upon the entire earth uh, till the ninth hour. And during these three hours, Jesus, our Lord and Savior, uh, you know, he suffered in silence. And uh, it was toward the end of the third, end of those three hours, that we hear Jesus uh, utter his fourth saying from the cross, which is found in Mark's Gospel Chapter 15, verse 34, Jesus said, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we noted last time that we were together, Jesus cried out those words so that we would never have to. Jesus was forsaken so that we might be forgiven. He endured the cross for a time that we might enjoy God's presence for eternity. And he drank the cup of God's wrath and righteous indignation so that we could partake of the cup of communion. Jesus hung on the cross in in terrible darkness in order that we might walk in God's marvelous light. What a wonderful Savior we have. He did it all because of his great love for each one of us. How thankful are you for him? I'm tremendously thankful for him. Then in fairly rapid succession came his last three statements. Jesus' fifth statement is found in John 19 verse 28 when Jesus said, I thirst. We have a very detailed description of the Messiah and his crucifixion. It's found in Psalm 22. And in Psalm twenty-two fifteen, 15, it says, my strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue cleaves." my jaw. Now, I personally believe that it was because his mouth was so severely dry, we might say he had cotton mouth. You know, when Jesus cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabathini, some of the people didn't understand what he was saying, and they thought he was calling on Elijah to come and rescue him. Personally, I believe that um, and I believe it very strongly that when Jesus said I thirst, It was because he knew that uh, someone would go and fill a sponge of sour wine uh, and put it on hyssop and put it to his mouth. And I believe that, you know, that was to relieve him of that cotton mouth, to relieve him of that dryness, so that everyone for all time could hear him clearly what it was that he was going to say next. And what Jesus said next, his sixth statement from the cross is found in John 19.30. And Jesus said, it is finished. As Jesus cried out, it is finished. What he was communicating to us and to all mankind is that he's provided for us a finished work of salvation. It's a finished work of salvation that's provided to us through his death upon the cross. And as we noted last time we were together, any attempt to add to that perfect finished work of salvation that was accomplished there upon the cross can only result in marring or defacing that work. Salvation is a finished work provided for us by our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's not Jesus and anything. It's not the cross, and anything. It's Jesus crucified, period. Received by faith in a substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. That's how we're saved. And immediately after Jesus said it is finished, we hear his seventh saying from the cross that's found in Luke 24, verse 46. When Jesus said, Father, into your hand I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now, the King James Version says, having said this, he gave up the ghost. Or as John records it in his gospel, bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many. No one took his life from him. He laid it down. He offered his life as a sacrifice for the sin of all mankind. The perfect, spotless Lamb of God. And as we read in Matthew 27, verse 51, Then, behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. People who want to find fault with the Bible, with the gospel accounts, they'll point you to Mark's account of this, and they'll read it. It says, and Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And then they'll point you to Luke's gospel, which says, then the sun was darkened and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. And they'll say to you, you know, there you go. See, it's a contradiction. I mean, you can't trust the Bible. One gospel says, you know, the veil was torn before Jesus cries out. The other gospel says that, you know, it was after Jesus cried out. I mean, you you see, it's just another contradiction. You can't trust the Bible. Well, is that true? Is it a contradiction? Well, the answer, <laughs> I hope you already know, is no, it's not true. It's not a contradiction. Because in the Greek, it carries with it the idea that these things occurred simultaneously, right? As Jesus cries out from the cross, it is finished, then yields up his spirit at the same time in the temple, the veil was torn in two from top to bottom. And I think for us to fully understand the significance of, of the veil being torn. We need to go back to Exodus and look at the description of the veil, uh, the symbolism surrounding the veil, and the purpose of the veil. So keep your finger here in Matthew and uh, turn back to Exodus chapter 26. And as we turn back to Exodus chapter 26, we need to remember that the Old Testament is a picture book of New Testament principles. Somebody once said the New Testament is in the Old concealed and the Old is in the New revealed. It's also been said that um, the New Testament is in the Old contained and the Old Testament is in the New explained. Uh, the, you know, the pictures found in the Old Testament, it, it helps us to understand the principles found in the New Testament. And so Exodus chapter 26 is all about uh, the tabernacle where God met with the people. And as you study Exodus chapter 26, you discover it's an amazing picture of Jesus Christ. Who he is and what he did for us. You know, we get a a description of the veil starting in verse 26. uh, Sorry, starting in verse 31, Exodus chapter 26. 31 through 35. If you read along with me, it says, you shall make a veil woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread and of fine linen. It shall be woven with an artistic design of cherubim. Uh, you, shall hang it up, uh, you shall hang it upon four pillars of acacia wood overlaid with gold. Their hooks shall be gold upon four sockets of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasp. Then you shall bring the Ark of the Testimony in there behind the veil. The veil shall be a divider for you between the holy place and the most holy. You shall put the mercy seat upon the Ark of the Testimony in the most holy. You shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand across from the table on the side of the tabernacle towards the south. And you should uh, put the table on the north side. So we see in Exodus chapter 26... Uh, That You know, as you look at the entire chapter, you see that actually the tabernacle, it's divided into three parts. First is the outer court, and that was um, a courtyard 150 feet by 75 feet. You know, now the actual tabernacle, which was basically a tent, it was situated within uh, the outer court. The actual tabernacle, it was 45 feet by 15 feet. You know, inside the tent, uh, you know, the tabernacle, it was divided into two compartments. Now, there was the holy place, which was 30 feet by 15 feet, you know. uh, And then at the far end of the holy place, as you came into the temple uh, tabernacle, the far end of the holy place uh, was the veil and that veil separated the holy place from the holy of holies, or as it's called in verse 33 of Exodus 26, the most holy. Now, the, the holy of holies, um, I'm sorry, I think that's what I, I said. I said the holy place called the most holy. No, it's the holy of holies beyond the veil uh, called the most holies. And that holy of holies is a small room, 15 feet by 15 feet. You know, it was, it was a little square, um, so we have the Holy of Holies, 15 by 15. We have the Holy Place, 30 by 15. And then we have the outer court, which is 150 by uh, 75 feet. And these are the three compartments of that which is called the tabernacle. Now, if you look down at verse 35, Matthew 26, 35, you see two of the three pieces of furniture found in the holy place. The first is the table of showbread. There uh, was to be upon this table of showbread 12 loaves of bread, one for each of the 12 tribes. And it symbolizes that God's people were continually in his presence. And we see in verse 35, across from that table of showbread, as you entered in, the table of showbread would be on the right And across from that on your left would be the lampstand. It was the only source of light found in the tabernacle. And that lampstand, of course, is also symbolic of Jesus Christ because he is the light of the world. It was made of, excuse me, pure gold, speaking of his deity. And if you actually look back one chapter, Exodus 25, 31, we see that the lampstand was to be made of a hammered, Work. Speaking of the abuse that he would suffer uh, as he gave his life for the sins of the world, so as you entered into the tabernacle, again on the right you would see the table of showbread, and there on the left would be the golden lampstand. But before you, at the end of the holy place, uh, there would be the 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 veil. And then right in front of that veil was the altar of incense, right? And it's upon the altar of incense that the priest would burn incense uh, before the Lord, symbolizing the prayers of the saints, the prayers of his people. Now, the priest, they would enter into that holy place and minister every day, right? They would make sure that the the showbread was arranged on the table just right. They'd make sure that the lamps had oil in them and they were burning properly. They would trim the wicks as needed and they would also offer incense there on the altar of incense. And they would do this on a daily basis. But, but again, at the end of the holy place was the veil. And on the other side of the veil was the holy of holies. And what was on the other side of the veil of the Holy of Holies? The Ark of the Covenant. Covenant. And what else? The mercy seat. Right, exactly. And, uh, you know, the Ark of the Covenant was basically a box, right? And it contained in it the Ten Commandments, right? And then later on, as time went by, it contained a jar of manna and also... Uh, Aaron's rod that budded. And again, the ark is a picture of Jesus. Uh, It was made of acacia wood, speaking of his humanity. And it was covered in pure gold, speaking of his uh, uh, deity. And the items found within the ark also spoke of Jesus, right? The law, which he fulfilled perfectly. Uh, The jar of manna, God's provision come down uh, from heaven, giving life to the people. And Aaron's rod that budded, a dead branch that came back to life, right? But each of these items also spoke of man's sin and rebellion uh, to God. And you'll remember as the law was being given, the people, they had already broken the 10 commandments, right? By worshiping the golden calf. And you'll remember the manna. It was a reminder of, Uh, It it reminds us of how the people uh, tested God and complained against God. You know, not trusting him to provide for them in the wilderness. And again, that rod, it reminds us of how the people rejected Moses and Aaron as God's anointed leaders, which uh, really what they were doing was rejecting God. So these things which symbolize man's sins and rebellion were placed in the Ark and covered by that mercy seat. The mercy seat was basically just a lid to the Ark of the Covenant, and and it had two cherubim there on top of it. And it's interesting to understand that when God looks at the Ark, I mean, this is such a beautiful picture to me. When God looks at the Ark, instead of seeing... Those uh, symbols of man's sin and rebellion, they were actually hidden from God's sight by the mercy seat, right? All God would see when he looked at the ark was he would see the, the shed blood that was sprinkled upon the mercy seat. He wouldn't see the sin of the people. Now, in the Holy of Holies is where God's glory resided, Right? It was the kabod of God. And if you were to enter into the Holy of Holies, you would actually see the visible glory or presence of God there upon the mercy seat. And because of God's glory being present in the Holy of Holies, you know, only one man, the high priest, not only was allowed to go in there uh, into the Holy of Holies only one time a year. On Only the high priest, one day a year on the day of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, only then was he allowed to pass through the veil to enter into the Holy of Holies, to sprinkle blood upon the mercy seat. Now, can you imagine? I mean, just think about it for a second. Can you imagine just how frightening And at the same time, how wonderfully exciting that must have been. One man, the high priest, one day a year, the day of atonement. And he alone would pass through the veil to experience God's presence and to see his glory with his own eyes. I mean, how wonderful that must have been. Well, that was the tabernacle, the outer court, where the people would go in and out. Uh, as, as they pleased, the holy place where only the priest could enter in. Um, and they would enter in daily and minister, right? And then the Holy of Holies where God's presence was. And only one man, the high priest, one day a year, the Day of Atonement, was, was allowed to enter in. Now, we've seen the veil described in Exodus twenty six thirty one 31 uh, through 35. And I'm sure you all get it now. Uh, that everything in the tabernacle points to Jesus. So what does the veil symbolize? Well, hold your finger here, okay, in in Exodus, and let's turn over to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 and 20. In In the book of Hebrews, the writer describes the tabernacle. He talks about the tabernacle and the temple, uh, you know, uh, he describes what the various articles in them actually means. So in Hebrews 10, 19 through uh, 20, he tells us what the veil represents. And you can read it along. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the, the uh, holiest <clears throat> by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, right? So the writer of the Hebrews tells us that the veil represents the flesh of Jesus. So if the veil is the flesh of Jesus and we're to enter into the Holy of Holies and experience the glory of God, what does it all mean? Well, let's turn back to Exodus chapter 26 flip back there very quickly. Exodus chapter 26, verse 31 says, you shall make a veil woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and fine woven linen, and it shall be woven with an artistic design of cherubim. So the representation of the veil is this. The blue is the color that speaks of the heavenlies, right? Jesus, as a man, he was a man whose eyes were on eternity he, he, he was a heavenly minded man, right? Purple, the next color is the color of royalty uh, in the Bible. Jesus is the king of kings. His kingdom is an eternal uh, kingdom in the heavens, right? And remember after Jesus fed the 5,000, after that they came to him to make him their king, right? They wanted him to be their king because he filled their bellies. And, and that's uh, what they were looking for in a king. Someone that could meet their immediate physical need. And uh, Jesus departed from them. And you know what? Uh, I think all too often, we're concerned with earthly things. We're concerned with immediate, present, physical needs. We're concerned with what we're going to eat. You know, what we're going to make for dinner. How we're going to pay the bills. Uh, We can be consumed and caught up in relationships. You know, our careers, our happiness. You know, oftentimes nowadays we make decisions solely based on comfort. You know, what's going to be the most comfortable? What's What's the easiest route to go? And even though our concerns are often all about the here and now, our king is concerned about our eternity, right? He has a bigger plan in view. Right? He's more concerned with who we'll be right, and how we'll function in heaven. Our Lord and Savior loves each one of us so much. He's more interested in our growing in him. Right, He has a heaven in view. He's looking at a much bigger picture. And because of this, he sometimes says, I'm not going to answer the prayer that prayer right now. I'm not going to meet that need the way you want me to. But Lord, I want it. Lord, I'll just be so happy if you just do this. I mean, you know, it would be so much easier, Lord, if you would just do it my way. But our King knows, you know, there's a bigger picture. He's working a greater work than you are currently seeing. He's preparing you and I for eternity. Right? We need to understand when we get to heaven, no one's gonna say, oh, that's the reason you didn't answer the prayer the way I wanted you to. It's not worth it. You know, no one's gonna be complaining in heaven. When we get there, we're gonna just say, praise the Lord, knowing what I know now. Lord, I would do it exactly the way you did it. Thank you, Lord when we get to heaven, we're going to just say, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for allowing me to go through those hard times, preparing me for heaven. And you know what? That joy of heaven is going to last forever and ever. It's going to be great. We're never going to get tired of it. Jesus' kingdom is a heavenly kingdom, and that's why... The blue and purple are linked together here. And as you continue to read in verse 31, you see the next color, scarlet. Scarlet or red, you know, it speaks of the blood of Jesus, right? The blood he shed as a sacrifice for our sins. Because he shed his blood for us, we can trust him to do what's best for us. In his flesh, he was heavenly minded. In his flesh, he is the king of kings. In his flesh, he was a sacrifice for all mankind. His flesh was beaten and bruised, right? Uh, He took upon himself the sins of the world that we might be forgiven. And you also want to notice in verse 31 that the veil was made of fine linen thread. If you were with us during our Revelation study, you'll remember that the fine uh, linen thread speaks of His righteousness, right? The fine linen is a picture of Jesus's righteousness, his sinlessness, his perfect humanity, fulfilling every detail of the law. And in verse 32 says, you shall hang it upon four pillars of acacia wood overlaid with gold. The the, the veil is hanging on, on four pillars. Why four? Well, because they point to the four gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? Those four gospels hold up for us. Jesus, so that we can see him clearly. Jesus, 100% God, 100% man. And they reveal to us who Jesus was in the flesh, the Son of God and the Son of Man. Verse 32, you shall uh, hang it upon four pillars of acacia wood overlaid with gold. Jesus in his flesh would be hung on a wooden cross. And that cross would have four points to it. Why four pillars? Paul says that Jesus became for us or provided for us through the sacrifice of his flesh, his body upon the cross, he became for us wisdom of God, wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. Verse 32, you'll hang it upon four pillars of acacia wood overlaid with gold. Their hooks shall be gold upon four sockets of silver. Gold, as we said, represents deity. Jesus was held up in the flesh by God the Father, held up for us at his baptism. God the Father saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. God the Father held him up At the Mount of Transfiguration, you remember when Peter saw Jesus' face shining like the sun and, and his clothes becoming as white as light. Peter saw Jesus there speaking to Moses and Elijah. And it was there that the Father spoke from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. The Father held Jesus up in his flesh at his baptism for all to see. Uh, The baptism of Jesus, speaking of his mission. He came to die, to be buried, and to be resurrected again the third day. The father held up the son as he spoke to Moses and Elijah regarding his uh, death in Jerusalem. The veil, the flesh of Jesus, the four pillars upon which the veil hung, speaking the four gospels, the cross and the work, uh, finished work of the cross, The golden hooks holding up the veil. Speaking of the father holding up the son at his baptism, at the Mount of Transfiguration. And we also see in verse 32, the sockets of silver. Silver in the Bible is the metal of redemption. But there's a problem. If you look down at verse 33, it says, and you shall hang the veil from the clasp There you shall bring the Ark of the Testimony in there behind the veil. The veil shall be a divider for you between the holy place and the most holy. So the veil is hanging up, but very interestingly, it was to be a divider. It was to be a barrier between the holy place and the holy of holies. The holy of holies being the place where God's glory resided. You might... Have noticed? I skipped, uh, you know, the last portion of verse thirty-one. I did it purposely to bring it up now. If you look at verse thirty-one, it says, "It shall be woven of, of an a uh, fine uh, of an artistic design of cherubim." So as you entered into the holy place, you looked towards the holy of holies, and you would see the veil there, which was a barrier between you and the glory of God, right? And you'd see two cherubim woven within that veil. And if you were a Jewish, you would be instantly reminded of Genesis 3.24, where after Adam had sinned, it says, God drove out the man And he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And boy, I tell you what, that flaming sword, I'm sure it was in the shape of a cross as it turned every way. But as you entered in the tabernacle coming from the east, the veil uh, hung on the east side of the Holy of Holies. And just as the cherubim, cherubim barred the way to the tree of life on the east side of the garden, right? You'd be barred entrance by the veil into the Holy of Holies. Now this is the picture, okay? Uh, For those who are seeking entrance into God's presence based on their own merit or their own righteousness, Jesus' righteousness and perfect sinless life is held up there as a standard. Right? God has declared in and through his son what it takes to come into his presence. And that's total and absolute righteousness. Right? Well, you know, Gare, <laughs> you don't know me, but I think I'm a pretty good guy. Well, you know what? Okay, I'm not gonna argue with you, but let's see, let's just see how you measure up, right? God the Father held up and spread out His Son as a standard to those who wish to come into the presence of God on their their own righteousness, on their own merit. And we can tell, we can tell everyone who desires to come into the presence of God based on their own righteousness, if they have lived the perfect life, just like Jesus, if they have never sinned, not even a little slip up, right? Then they don't have to be born again. They've arrived. They're in. Enter in to the presence of God. But the truth is, the Bible says, there's none righteous. No, not one. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short. We all are in need of a Savior. And because Jesus, this beautiful veil of blue, purple, scarlet, and fine linen, His perfect, sinless, righteous life is the standard Because of that, we're barred from entering into the presence of God. There's a division because we've fallen short, right? He's perfect. I'm far from perfect. You know, the veil, as beautiful as it was, right, kept people out of the Holy of Holies. It kept people from experiencing God's glory. But now something happened. This, this one who, who uh, was beautiful and perfect in his flesh hung upon the cross. Turn back now to Matthew 27. And we see Jesus hanging on the cross, just like the veil was hung there in the tabernacle and in the temple, as it was at the time of Jesus' crucifixion. We see Jesus hanging there on the cross for six terrible hours, and Matthew 27, 45, we read, now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. It was a, it, it's a picture of each um, person as they reject the sun. Darkness will always be that result. As people reject Jesus Christ, the only thing that they're going to experience in this life, and it, on into eternity is darkness. And we saw in John 1930, Jesus cried out, It is finished, to Te lest I paid in full. Right? Then he dismissed his spirit. And as he did, Matthew 27, verse 51 says, The veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This all happened simultaneously. Now, interestingly enough, the veil in the temple was it was way larger than the veil in the tabernacle. A.T. Robinson, the Greek scholar, tells us that the veil in the temple was made up of 72 braids, each braid being made up of 24 ropes, right? It was 60 feet by 30 feet by 10 inches thick. That's how big the veil was. The temple, the the veil in the temple was way bigger than the veil in the tabernacle. Vincent, in his commentary, says it took 300 priests to hang the veil in the temple. So suffice it to say, we're not talking about a shower curtain. This thing is massive. It's It's a massive piece of art, right? Very thick, extremely heavy. And as Jesus died on the cross even as his flesh was being torn apart physically, right, at that moment in time, the veil ripped apart from top to bottom. Right? Luke 23, 45 in the King James says, we have that slide? Luke 23, 45 in the King James says, and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst Right? The New Living Translation says, and suddenly the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn down the middle. Right? Matthew 27 51, and the other gospel says, from top to bottom. Right? Just take a second to think about this, okay? Have you ever taken a, an old towel or an old piece of cloth and ripped it in two to go out and wash your car? Or worse than that, I preach from my own experiences. Worse than that, have you ever ripped the seat of your pants right down the middle? You know, you have heard that just that. Whoa. I mean, just think how loud of a noise that veil made when it ripped. Right, just think about this veil and how loud it must have been when it ripped. And then add to that this little detail. At the exact time that Jesus died, right, priests were in the temple offering the evening sacrifice. And if you were a priest serving in the temple at that time, you would have seen something that you would have never, probably in your entire lifetime, never would have ever seen. And that would have been, the Holy of Holies, right? With the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat right there upon it, right? And with the veil being ripped, you would have have seen this veil being ripped from top to bottom. And it signified the work of God declaring open house, as it were, right? Enter in, right? Now, Now we're able to come boldly into the presence of God and To enjoy his glory. That which was once a barrier for us, the veil, a picture of Christ's flesh, right? A picture of his perfection has now become a bridge for us to enter in. Well, what do you mean? I'm not sure I'm tracking with you, Gary. You know, the veil, which was a picture of Jesus and the standard of God, which is perfection. If we're to enter into the presence of God, It's now been ripped apart, right? Jesus, as a substitutionary sacrifice, took our sin. He took your sin. He took my sin, and he was crucified. He was ripped apart, if you will, upon the cross. And as he was dying upon the cross, God says, now the price has been paid. Right, as Jesus died The veil was ripped into down the middle, inviting all to come into the presence of God. You know, I want to consider a couple applications before we move on. First, history tells us that the Jews sewed up that veil. What a picture of religion that is. My goodness. Religion puts obstacles in the ways of people who are wanting to come to God and enter into his presence. Right? God has made a way for us to enter into his presence, right? As often as you like, not just one day a year, right? But every day of the year, anytime, time, doesn't matter where you are, doesn't matter what you're doing, you're welcome. So my advice to each one of us, and I think this, this is the application here, is don't let anyone tell us you can't come. Don't let anyone tell you you can't come, you know? Don't allow anyone to sew up that veil for you saying, "Uh, you know, you can't come to God. You haven't done your devotions this week. You know what? Yeah, you can't come to God. You haven't, you've read your Bible only how long? No, you can't just come to God the way you are. You need to work a little harder and make yourself more presentable. Go home, read the Old Testament, then come. Go pray and fast a few days, a few weeks, then come. No, no. Ephesians 2, 18 says, For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Hebrews 10, 19 and 20 says, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which we consecrated, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. In Hebrews 4.16, this has got to be a favorite verse of everybody in this room. If it's not, write it on a card, tack it to your refrigerator, remember it. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. Could be also translated the throne called grace. Let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. We can come anytime. Don't listen to anyone or anything that tells you you can't come to God. Don't try to to work up some form of righteousness by waiting till you're worthy to come to God because you'll never be worthy in and of yourself. Right? It's not about, you know, it's not about uh, what you're able to do. It's all about what he's done for us, right? Jesus bids you to come. Come just as you are. Come into the presence of God the Father and enjoy him in his beauty. Enjoy his peace. Enjoy his love. Drink him in until you're completely and totally satiated and satisfied and filled to overflowing You know, the the second application I think uh, is here for us is not only should we not allow anyone to sew up that veil for us, but also don't put on a veil, right? Well, what's that supposed to mean, Gary? Well, turn back uh, to Exodus chapter 34 quickly, right? Moses is there on the mountain, Exodus chapter 34, Exodus chapter 34, verse 29 says, Now it was so, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand when he had come down from the mountain, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. So when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. Then Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned to him. And Moses talked to them. Afterward, all the children of Israel came near, and he gave them the commandments, all that the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. You know, Moses didn't know his face was shining at first, right? Moses was uh, reflecting God's glory. His was an outward glowing as a result of spending time in God's presence. When Moses went in to speak to the Lord, he would take off this veil. And when he would uh, come out to speak to the people, he would put on this veil, you know, until he went back in to talk to the Lord again. You know, at first Moses didn't know his face was shining, right? And it would seem, reading this verse, that when he became aware of it, uh, because the people were afraid, that's why he put this veil <clears throat> over his face. And if that was all we knew of this story, we'd say, wow, you know, that was really an act of humility. I mean, Moses covered his face so that people wouldn't stand in amazement of him, right? And his face, I mean, it's shining in front of all the people like that. But if you take a quick look, don't turn there, we'll put it up, 2 Corinthians 3.13. If you take a quick look uh, at this verse, Paul says, unlike Moses who put a veil over his face so the children of Israel could not look steadfastly at the end of what was passing away, right? Paul says that Moses put this veil over his face not because he was humble, but because he didn't want the people to see that the glory was passing away. You know what? He would take that veil off when he went into the Lord's presence, but then, uh, you know, he'd put it back on when he went out to speak to the people. But the people, however, I mean, they could see through the veil, they could see that the glory was fading away, right? And Moses saw that it was passing away and, uh, you know, he'd go into the Lord to charge up again, so to speak, you know, to uh, get the batteries going again, so to speak. You know, it appeared to others that he was being really humble placing this veil uh, over his face. But he but the reality is he didn't want the others to see the diminishing glory. So, what are you saying, Gary? Don't put a veil on. What does that mean? Well, it means there are hard times in our lives, in our walks with the Lord. We go through difficult times. You know, we don't want people to see those things that we're, we're going through. We want them to see that we're we're struggling. You know, we, want, we don't want them to see that we're diminished. So what do we do? We cover up. We cover up. And the Christian answer to how you doing is always, most of the time, oh, great, praise the Lord. You know, God is so good, right? And we say that when we're breaking inside. And it's especially hard when you're engaged in ministry. It's really hard. You know, it's okay for each of us to be fragile. And transparent with each other you know don't try to be super spiritual when you, when you need prayer i've learned and i'm continuing to learn that i can't just pour out my heart right or share what i'm going through with just anyone people aren't always gracious so you know i look for wise godly brothers and ask them to pray I ask them to pray for me and you know what it's okay God doesn't expect any of us to be super saints, right? Putting a veil on so that others think more highly of us than what they should. And that's a burden if that's what you're doing. That's a burden. And you can't carry that burden either. It'll wear you out in time. If you need prayer, let's pray, right? I've been going through a difficult time recently. Maybe maybe I veiled it successfully. You don't see it. I don't know. But I, I've asked some trusted friends to be praying for, for me and my family. You know, uh, we seem to be in a trial that actually we've never faced before. We've never faced a trial like this before. Believe it or not, people actually like me. <laughs> so I asked some of my closest friends in ministry to be praying for us. And I'm not looking to men for the answers. But I'm I'm asking some of my closest friends to stand with me, to ask God to move on our behalf because that's the way the family of God is supposed to work. Galatians 6, 2 says, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. The law of Christ is to love one another. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5, 14 says, Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. If you're walking close with the Lord, you're a target. You're a target. You'll experience attack. You know, people aren't always loving. You know, they'll, they'll come at you from unexpected uh, direction. And God will allow the trials. And, and you're going to need prayer. Don't put a veil on so it looks like you're more spiritual than you really are. It's okay to be weak. It's okay to ask for prayer. We're supposed to be a family. Well, the veil is torn. We have bold access to God the Father. Don't let anyone sew it up, right, and close away Uh, to him. and, And that, you know, that can be really subtle. And don't put on a veil. It's okay to let people in. And when someone comes to you and reveals a need, asking for prayer, respond to them in a spirit of gentleness. Don't gossip about their problems with other people. Keep it confidential. That's what we're instructed to do in the Bible. And if you're going to if you say you're going to pray for them, you know what my encouragement to you is, pray for them. Pray for them. Reach out to them, see how they're doing. Let's enter boldly into the presence of God with confidence. And let's be real with each other. Loving towards each other, patient with each other, right? Bearing one another's burdens. Matthew 27 Verse 51, we're going to be closing here real quickly. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Matthew records for us at the time of Jesus' death three monumental events. First, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Secondly, at the time of Jesus' death, there was a strong earthquake that occurred, splitting the rocks. I mean, the crucifixion of the Son of God was such a powerful, literally earth-shaking event. It had repercussions, you know, that affected creation. Think about that for a minute. Wow. And thirdly, which is only recorded for us in, in Matthew's gospel, is the graves were opened and many of the saints who were dead were raised. Matthew tells us that these saints went into Jerusalem and they were seen by many. It wasn't a secret, silent event someplace. This was public, seen by many. And this occurred after Jesus' resurrection. Because Jesus, His resurrection, Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits from the dead, we're told in 1 Corinthians. It's a testimony to Christ. All of this was a testimony to Christ. Triumph over sin, death in the grave. And the symbolism is this. Because Jesus is life, death, and resurrection, the tomb has lost its power. You know what? The grave has lost its terror. And death has lost its grip on each one of us, Right? Now we can be confident because Jesus lives. We too shall also live in him. And I find this whole story of the dead being raised because of the crucifixion. Very interesting because it's the story of every believer. It's literally the story of every believer, right? Paul says, Ephesians 2.1. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. And he goes on to say in Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 6, but God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love, which he uh, loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with him. By grace, you've been saved. Salvation is unearned, unmerited, uh, not of anything that we can do. And that's what Paul's saying when he says, by grace, you've been saved. Salvation is offered to all based on God's mercy and his great love for us. And God can, uh, Paul continues and he says, and raised us up together. And if that wasn't enough, he has made us to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Man, I think we're seeing the promises. I think here in Matthew uh, 27, where uh, the dead coming out of their graves, we're seeing the promises made to us through Paul's picture here, and he pictures this for us at the time of, uh, I mean, Matthew pictures this for us at the time of his, Jesus' resurrection. It's, it's actually the beginning of the fulfillment of the Feast of first fruits, Leviticus 23, 10-14, which occurs right on the hills of Passover, which is when Christ was crucified, right? This is the token of that coming harvest when all saints will be raised. And in verse 54 So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. The Roman centurion, seeing the events of Jesus' crucifixion, hearing Jesus pray to the Father, saying, Father, forgive them. They, They know not what they do. Right? The darkened sky, the earthquake, how he dismissed his spirit. Hearing him cry out, it is finished left the centurion and those with him with only one conclusion, right? Truly, this was the son of God, right? It all worked together, allowing the centurion to see the majesty of Jesus and confess him to be the son of God. I believe at this moment, personally, I believe at this moment, this is when the centurion was saved. I think we're gonna see this guy in heaven. It's gonna be great. And verse 55, and many women who followed Jesus from Galilee ministering to him were there looking on from afar. And among whom were uh, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joses, and and the mother of Zebedee's sons. And I find this very instructive. I find this very encouraging. As the disciples had fled and forsook Jesus, forsaken Jesus, these women remained. They were there because... They loved Jesus. They were at the foot of the cross because they loved Jesus. They had no fear because perfect love casts out fear. Right? My prayer for us as individuals and my prayer for us as a church is that we would never be afraid to be seen at the foot of the cross and to confess Christ publicly and to be counted among his followers. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the encouragement found in your word. I thank you for the strength found in your word, strength to go on. And Lord, I just pray that this study that, that uh, has been presented today, it would just be worked into our hearts by your Holy Spirit, Lord, that we would, we would come boldly into your presence. Lord, understanding that we're sinners and we're in in need of a Savior. But we wouldn't allow that to keep us from coming into your presence and just loving on you and being seen by others loving on you. Unafraid, Lord, to be associated with you. Lord, and and not to be so, I don't know, so hard-hearted that that we wouldn't be open and honest with our brothers and sisters to ask for prayer when we need it. Lord, we love you so desperately, Lord. We give you praise and glory, Jesus, in your name. Amen.